Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasize about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as prime minister, foreign secretary, chancellor or home secretary. But have you ever had that thought, but with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party. That's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party. And get your free case of eight beers. And you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack. And if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. You can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability and you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com slash party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to a political party budget special. I wanted to leave it a couple of days because budgets have a habit of unravelling and I wanted to be able to have a detailed discussion about what was actually in there and what it actually meant. So who better to join me than Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. This is superb. It's a really good, detailed but accessible briefing on the budget, what these changes mean. And then just each... Measure, I guess, leads to a slightly wider discussion about things like taxation and our tax system and our regulatory framework. And believe me, it's way more interesting than I'm making it sound. Our tax burden, the way we think about tax, our approach to it, it's just... And some stuff about the IFS and their role in our political landscape and how parties and activists have different hues may uh, perceive them and, and, and treat them at different times. But this is just a really good, firstly, a great briefing from Paul on the budget and what it means and what the effect of it will be and the things that were missing and what that means. But the wider chat about tax and the economy is absolutely great. Uh, there's some amazing details in there. I didn't know, particularly about gingerbread men, that, uh, well, I think that will be a revelation. Anyway, I'm going to leave it to Paul because he's just great. I began by uh, asking him the point and making the point, really, that budgets often unravel uh, and whether this budget had unraveled much in the uh, the two days since it had been delivered. I don't think it's unraveled. I think it's become pretty clear what it's doing. It's chucking yet again a load of money at the economy over the next year. He was pretty open about the fact there were some big tax rises coming down the road. I mean, there's some issues about some of those. Um, I think the thing that's um, really uh, clear from just a little bit of additional analysis is that 
his figures are based on some really tight spending plans after next year. That wasn't really new in the budget, but it's becoming increasingly clear that some of these numbers don't really add up. We'll come on to some of those. Just as a budget, you know, it's quite, in a way, I mean, obviously the backdrop of this is horrific because we've gone through and are going through this global crisis, which is a public health crisis and an economic one. Um, it is quite nice, though, to see a budget that isn't all about tinkering with pasties and arguments about hot foods and all these, all those sort of tiny little measures around the sides trying to squeeze pennies out of ideas in a way it's a nice to return to a budget that is just big broad themes dealing with big broad issues well i think that's true i mean you know i mean there were two big things i mean there really were only two big things in the budget one was a whole load of money um again to deal with coronavirus and then some great big tax rises in but not immediately in 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 in, in three or four years time in particular this really big uh, increasing corporation tax I guess the only you know, question one has about that is, will it really happen? I mean, you know, why announce it now for two years' time rather than do it now or um, announce it in two years' time when you're going to do it? But yeah, two, two really big things in the budget. And what is the logic for him announcing that for two years' time? Is that to allow businesses to get ready to kind of put some money aside or is there another reason? I think it gives businesses a little bit of certainty. I mean, there are some risks with that because if you know that the corporate tax rate is higher in the future, you might delay your investment um, into the future. Uh, though he did it, I mean, actually the third big thing in the budget was this you know, very big investment incentive for the next two years. So incentivizing businesses, actually subsidizing businesses to invest uh, in plant and machinery over the next couple of years. He may find that's as difficult to get rid of though as, 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 as many other things are, which are supposed to be temporary. There's a great big, uh, great big subsidy over two years the biggest danger possibly or one of the big dangers in the budget is that then in two years time he'll find it difficult to get rid of that and it is a really expensive uh, policy. Let's just start with the headline rate then so it's an increase from 19% to 23% coming in in 2023. 25% um, 25% sorry in, in 2023 <laughs> uh, but he also said uh, the, sm the small profits rate would maintain the 19% rate for firms with profits of 50 grand or less so it's a kind of staggered sort of progressive corporation tax increase. Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, that doesn't make much sense in the way that it makes sense to have progressive income taxes. Um, the fact that a company isn't making an enormous amount of profit doesn't tell you anything about how well off the people are who own that company, whether they own shares in a big company that's not very profitable or much more likely uh, they're someone who runs their own small company. It also creates all sorts of bizarre complexity because um he, he, he rather than like for income tax where you pay 20 percent and then it goes straight up to 40 percent when you um hit fifty thousand, for this corporate tax rate you start off at 19 percent and then you go to a higher rate um such that by the time i think it was 200 you get to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds uh the average rate um uh turns out to be um 25%. So I didn't explain that terribly well, but it's much more complicated than it sounds. <laughs> and all these things can have unintended consequences, can't they? I mean, he's, 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 his number one objective going into this budget is to get Britain through this crisis to make sure there's enough money in people's pockets, but also he needs to find a way to get that money back. Um, given the alternatives available to him, do you think he got the balance broadly right? Well, 
to a large degree, um, the, what what he's done last you know, over the, this couple of years looks like it might turn out to be really effective. I mean, if the um, forecast that unemployment peaks at six and a half percent is correct, I mean that will be you know an amazing achievement actually. Given given that we have, I mean, looking at all the actual economic numbers, this is literally the biggest economic recession in history. Now, that's not, in a sense, surprising, given that we've actually shut half the economy down for a large part of the year. Um, but that, but that, but that's actually what's happened. I mean, the, the, the scale of the economic hit's been huge, but so has the scale of the government support, and particularly through the furlough scheme, but all sorts of other business support schemes as well. If unemployment peaks at six and a half percent, I mean, that's obviously higher than it was. And um, any increase in unemployment is bad news. But that that is really, really low level of unemployment for a really, really big recession. I mean, way down on the sorts of unemployment numbers I remember from the 1980s when we had it, you know, unemployment more than twice that high. Um, so, so in a sense, he's, if that's where we get go, that's been a great um, outcome. Uh, but then there is this issue of, you know, the hangover from all of that sort of economic hit and also all of the um, uh, government support. Uh, and that's where the future, that, that's where in the future he's looking at um, raising taxes. Not so much because we borrowed such a lot this year, but more because um, some of that borrowing is likely to persist into the, into the medium run. And he doesn't want, I think, I think correctly, he doesn't want uh, borrowing so high into the future that the stock of debt keeps on rising and that does mean um at some point uh you know we do have to pay for that through higher taxes uh, and what's your view and what's the ifs view on during a period like this how much borrowing is desirable and what are the best ways to pay back that borrowing afterwards well, I mean, during a period like this, I mean, I mean, the scale of borrowing again is something that we could not have contemplated a year ago. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's astonishing to think that we're borrowing more this year than in any year in the whole of history, other than in the First and Second World Wars. And I think you should think about like this, like a war. I mean, we hope it's a kind of one-off, um, and we've thrown, we, we've just thrown everything at it. So, from a sort of fiscal point of view, we really have treated it in a way that we've only ever treated wars. Um, uh, in the past, and in terms of paying that off, um, I, mean, I don't even know if that's the right way to think about it. When we built up those huge war debts in the past, effectively, it's been a you know a generation or two um, during which the, the the debt has come down as economic growth has um, been strong. In fact, if you look at the Napoleonic Wars, it was about a century before uh, we got debt back to where it was prior. Um, uh, prior to the Napoleonic Wars, if you want a really uh, long history. I think the, the worry, in a way, from making those comparisons is you know, the economy grew really quite fast in the 1950s and 1960s, and there was a, you know, was a bit of inflation around, uh, and that got you know, huge war debt down at a reasonably good pace. Um, and uh, we've just had a decade of terrible economic growth, and there's nothing obvious in the air which strikes me that we're going to have a decade of strong growth coming up. And that does mean this debt will probably just be hanging around our neck for quite a long time to come. And, and servicing that debt, obviously, we're borrowing this m money at a time when interest rates are really low. I, I watched a seminar this morning where people th think the Bank of England might even go into negative interest rates and what that would mean. So that might lower some people's anxiety and go, well, while borrowing's low, um, then that's fine to borrow. But then you do leave yourself 
exposed to the risk that interest rates are going to rise. And when they're so low, it does feel like sooner or later, there's only really one direction interest rates can go in. Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, they, they, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, again, I mean, <laughs> they are the lowest in history. I mean, the Bank of England has been around since I think 1694 or something like that. And it hasn't had interest rates this low in the whole of that 330 years. We are writing economic history um, through this uh, through this period. And indeed, on that front, we have been since 2010. Um, and the result is that whilst we've got fairly high debt by historic standards, we've got the lowest ever interest payments because interest rates are close to zero. Um, uh, you're probably right that the only way they can go is up, though we've been thinking that for a decade and they keep going down. <laughs> um, uh, and I think they think that is that is a bit of a worry. It's a bit of a worry on two fronts. I mean, first, um, because the Bank of England holds a huge amount of this debt, nearly a trillion pounds worth, and uh, the way the sort of accounting works uh, means that if they increase their interest rate, then the interest the government has to pay goes up immediately, which doesn't normally happen because if you sort of buy government debt, um, you just pay the interest on the you, you the government just pays the interest on that until the debt matures, and that's often sort of twenty or thirty years down the road. So it's only rolling over new debt. But um, the way that this working at the moment, the any higher interest rate hits absolutely immediately, and then that starts to get quite a lot more expensive. But I think all, in all of this, I think a lot of the discussion often just misses the point. But the key thing is. However much you spend, you, you you still have to spend it sensibly. I mean, there's you know, there's no you know if you if if you spend money and you're sort of wasting it or getting a negative return on it, now that's still that's still a waste, even if it doesn't cost much to borrow it. And with, I mean, when I was studying my A level economics, which would have been around ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand and one. All the discussion. I never did A level. (laughs) I'm not sure. Does that make me more qualified than you? I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) It doesn't. Um, This was not long after Bank of England independence. I think Eddie George was still the governor of the Bank of England. And all the discussion then was about, oh, you know, if inflation goes above or below 2%, the governor of the Bank of England has to write to the Chancellor and explain why. That era of that kind of obsession with interest rates and inflation and using interest rates as a way to control inflation just now just feels like a completely different world. I mean, obviously, at some point, you know, those those economic truths still hold true, but it feels just so long ago since we talked about stuff like that. Yeah, but the remit of the Bank of England is still exactly the same, or pretty much exactly the same. So, I mean, whilst it feels very different, um, you know, may- maybe that's an argument for rethinking exactly what they should be doing. And in principle, that is what they're still doing. They're still using, in principle, monetary policy to stabilise um, inflation. It's just that, uh, I mean, they've also been using it to stabilise the economy and actually doing a lot of work to avoid deflation. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the extent to which they've been using quantitative easing, which is this buying up of um, government debt as a way of supporting the economy and they hope avoiding deflation has been quite extraordinary. Certainly something, you know, you would never have learned in A-level economics back then and certainly I never learned and no one ever thought about in in, 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 in the study of economics right up until um, the financial uh, crisis. Um, I, you know, but these things come round and I, I think there is an issue now about you know, we've, we've not really had to worry much about inflation for, you know, for 20 years or more. Indeed, since Bank of England independence, inflation has hovered you know, fairly close to 2% for most of that um, period. And I think it is 
it can be and again there's a sort of just broad historical sweep it can be when you sort of stop worrying about things that they come back and bite you i mean i remember inflation in double digits in the in particularly well, i'm old enough actually to you know, sort of remember the, remember the 70s um but uh, you know and it was it was a lot higher in parts at least of the 80s and 90s as well um and given you know, the incredibly uh, low interest rates, the amount of quantitative easing, the huge amount of money the government's been throwing at the economy, and some of the constraints on supply that Brexit and the pandemic might have created, it wouldn't be surprising if we get a dose of inflation over the next couple of years. And that, you know, that will again change people's perceptions. It might lead to a, a, an increase in interest rates. Um, it'll erode the value of some people's savings. Just while we're thinking about these institutions, after the financial crash and around that time, there was a, a lot of, uh, I guess, anxiety about the role of the Treasury, the FSA, the Bank of England, who was meant to be watching what, who was or wasn't doing things. In the period that has followed, so from the financial crash to now, how well do you think, I mean, it sounds like you think the Bank of England has done a really good job in terms of its remit and, and the, the actions it's taken, um, particularly on inflation. How well do you think the institutions that manage our economy and are, and effectively regulate and watch it have done since the crash? Well, I mean, there was I mean, there's, I mean, there was a big change after the crash. A lot of the banking role of the what was the FCA is now the FCA moved over to the um, moved over back over to the Bank of England, and that was a part of you know you said you were studying uh, Bank of England independence when you're doing A level economics. Well, a part of that was moving. Um, a lot of its roles into the old financial services authority and it appears that that didn't work terribly well and a lot of that got moved back into the uh, Bank of England after um, after 2010 and clearly you know after that particular crisis there was there's been a lot of focus on some of the issues that created that as I'm sure there'll be a lot of focus on the issues that created this one as we go forward until the next one hits us um uh you know how 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 good a job have um, have they have they done i mean I, there are clearly arguments about whether uh the bank should you know actually maybe have increased interest rates a little bit more than it did over this period the reason it didn't was because the economy has been so weak but a, a long period of very low interest rates has a whole series of other impacts on the economy it keeps you know, one way for example it keeps asset prices up it, you know what, what, why are house prices so big at the high at the moment um, despite a very poor economy, well, it's because interest rates are so incredibly low, and that creates um, you know, distributional effects. People who own the house back in 2008 have done very nicely. Younger people who are trying to get on the housing ladder have really struggled. So I think you know, it, it, part of the problem with this sort of institutional setup is you can't really divorce the sort of monetary policy that the Bank of England is following from the fiscal policy that the Treasury and the government is following. I mean, they have to be kind of interdependent. And, you know, quite how closely they coordinate policy and quite what extent the bank is acting genuinely independently of government, I think is one of the sort of hazy, fuzzy grey bits of the way that we govern ourselves. If you could design the ideal regulatory framework for the UK economy. What would you change about the way we do it? And I realise that's a very big question. Goodness me. Um, well, 
I mean, part. I mean, some of what we got really, I, I think, is is a big improvement on what we had in the past. So, if you look back twenty five years, Bank of England wasn't independent. We didn't have an office of budget responsibility. All of the power just rested with the Chancellor essentially. Um, and devolving some of that, I think, has been quite uh, quite effective. I think it's good that we've got independence of the Bank of England. I think it's good that we've got uh, an independent office of budget responsibility looking over the. Chancellor's shoulders at his, um, or in fact, making his um, economic forecasts. I think we've still got a Treasury, though, which is um, extremely um, powerful. There aren't really any checks and balances on it, and particularly when it comes to making tax policy. Um, you know, I think the Treasury is very good when it comes to sort of, you know, keeping an eye on other departments. But there's no one keeping an eye on the Treasury when it comes to the things that it's responsible for, and in particular, um, and in particular, tax. So I think that's one thing that you'd uh, you, you, you probably want to um, uh, you probably want to change about the uh, change about the architecture. Um, you, you know, we've got a very you know very, very sort of um, unusual uh, amount of power vested in the Treasury relative to um, other departments and uh, and. 10 Downing Street, uh, where most other countries would have a little bit more power right at the centre of government and a little bit less power in the economics and finance ministry. And then we've got a very, you know, I think historically ineffective business department. I mean, it was the Department of Trade of Industry, now the, now the Department of Business and uh, Energy Innovation and Skills, I think, anyway. It sort of changes its name slightly regularly um, at the moment. And I think that's one of the, probably the weakest bit of our economic architecture is we've never quite been clear what is the role of government relative to business creating a sort of what people call an industrial strategy or a, a strategy for um, uh, the relationship between government and, and business and that's something that just kind of keeps on coming up and keeps on being un, uh, unresolved. I'm not sure there's a TV on in the background or radio or something. Oh, sorry, it's my it's it's my partner's a teacher. She's teaching in the other room. <laughs> well, that's great. What's economics or not? What Biology. <laughs> oh, well, we're getting two for the price of one here. There'll be sort of subliminal. Um... What sorry. age group is she teaching? No, it's fine. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll shut this door. A bit more. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to tell if it's um just because we record this over zoom sometimes there's just you know extra noises but what sort of age group does she teach a uh, sixth form college a, a level well, well there you go so it's to a high standard so this will be people will be getting um <laughs> economics and biology all in one this is a combined <laughs> lesson so um do you get i mean you've you've had spells at the treasury in the fsa in the run-up to budgets and things do chancellors does the treasury does number 11 run stuff by the IFS, do they pick your brains ahead of big moments like this? We, we certainly don't get, you know, we, we, we don't get any preview of what's uh, what's in there. And um, obviously, you know, the Treasury's got, you know, 100 times more people than we do to um, do uh, some of this. But we, I mean, there is, you know, they, I mean, there is some sort of um, uh, discussions between us and Treasury officials through the year about, you know, we about tax policy and our proposals on how you might change that and sometimes they use us as a sounding board for some of the things that they're um uh, that they're thinking about so there's a good there's a good sort of um level of conversation uh between us and i think because we're 
um, you know, we're, we, I think we're reasonably trustworthy. They can, uh, they, they can talk, you know, uh, somewhat openly with us. Uh, but, you know, though, though we didn't have any conversation with them about increasing corporation tax or um, what they might do to personal allowances or anything or, or anything like that. Sadly, we're not that, uh, we're, that we're, not, we're, we're not that much inside the machine. <laughs> you are seen as the industry leader, though. I mean, whenever there's a budget or any economic announcement, the IFS is always top of the list. It's who people want to hear from first. And that is a reputation that's grown over years. I mean, it must be uh, I mean, it's a cool thing to be. The, the most trusted independent voice on, on matters of the economy, I guess. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's very kind of you to say so. It's not many people who th- you think that's cool when I tell them. I'm going to tank. But anyway. That's cool. You work on the budget. Or, or, or being a rock and roll star. But in, in political, politico-economic terms, it's kind of, you're the market uh, leader. Yeah, I mean, it's something, you know, we've... Um, you know, we've been doing this sort of thing, my my my, my predecessors, um, you know, since the 1980s. I mean, we, we, we I mean, we're an organisation that um, we're not very big, but we've sort of grown very slowly over that sort of period, and um, uh, we've uh, extended what we do very slowly. Um, and I've just been you know, very careful to keep a consistent. I suppose you call it a consistent culture about the place, which is to be very. Um, determinedly independent politically and in terms of what we say careful uh, about uh, what we say but willing to be um challenging and very analytical and um you know whilst you know we're talking about the budget and the sort of high profile stuff we do um actually most of what we do or at least most of what my colleagues do is um is very deep academic uh, research uh, using you know statistical techniques which frankly i don't understand on <laughs> you know, very uh you know very big data sets and so on so this is all based in um you know very serious uh research and i suppose it's those two things together which hopefully gives us a, a that plus a capacity to um communicate reasonably straightforwardly i think is what what gives us a particular and I think fairly unique kind of organize makes a fairly unique kind of organization. Our budget days and whatever they call now, autumn statements, comprehensive spending reviews, are they kind of like your Christmases? Do you go right? It's budget days <laughs> on the third of March this year, guys. We've got to work towards this. In you know the way that other organizations work towards whatever they re- work towards their annual report, their annual conference. Is the budget the kind of the Christmas for the IFS? Well, I don't know about Christmas, but <laughs> I don't think we're—I don't think we're so sad that we, you know, we'd, we'd want to do that on Christmas Day. But uh, it's—they're uh, certainly, you know, they're certainly the biggest day. I mean, they are sort of the big days of the year. I mean, there are sort of, you know, the moments when the economists come out into blinking into the sunlight and um, sort of talking to uh, talking to the world. So they are very. They're big and exciting days, and particularly this year, actually, because you know, we've, we've all been working at home for goodness knows how long, and a bunch of us actually went into the office and saw each other, and uh, you know, noticed kind of how big the beards had grown and all, 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 all that sort of stuff. So this year, this year in a way, was particularly was almost was almost a bit like Christmas because you know we actually got to go in and talk to each other, um, which was uh, which was rather rather nice. But yes, they, they they are you know they are the big they are the biggest sort of set piece days of the year for us certainly. And those set piece days, I mean, I forget what the other ones, it was the comprehensive spending review, then it was the autumn, sta- I think it's still called the autumn statement. Is it? Or did they get rid of it? I've sort of lost track now. Well, well supposedly, well, I'm not surprised you lost track because supposedly, officially, the budget is supposed to happen every 
autumn now and we're supposed to have a spring statement but for the last two years they've cancelled the autumn budget this year because of coronavirus and they had the spending review instead and last year um they uh, had an election instead so um i'm not surprised you've lost track because i think the treasury have lost track of when they're supposed to have a budget as well they just keep getting it in the wrong in the wrong time which is quite irritating for us because we do a big bit of work pre-budget work which we call our green budget um sort of green as in a government green paper the idea being to set out before the budget what the options are and our analysis of uh, some of the issues in the last two years we've done it at the wrong time because they moved the budget from autumn to spring which is really irritating of them <laughs> so so what color would it be then would it, would it, would it be overripe would that would then be a brown budget a yellowing around the edges kind of budget yes. <laughs> so with with the way the government handles Big economic announcements like the budget, the spring statement, the autumn statement, the comprehensive spending review. Maybe I'm just too new Labour a guy, but I always felt that the comprehensive spending review really was a way of getting to announce another raft of great news, thinking, well, we like the budget and that gets us good headlines every year. So why don't we do another one in six months time so we get these two big hits? Am I being too cynical about my own side there? Um and is there any merit in having two announcements a year? Or do you think, oh, this is just the same stuff, that there's no use in this? Or does that second announcement, whenever it is and whatever they call it, serve another function that's actually quite helpful? I think generally speaking, you only really need one big economic sort of um, uh, set piece a year. And actually, I mean, that was the intention. I mean, when, I mean, Philip Hammond, when he was uh, Chancellor, he deliberately said that that's what he's going to do. He wanted to move the budget to the autumn have all of the big things in that and then just have a little spring um, statement after years and years of two sort of big, big things, an autumn statement and a budget um, uh, and sometimes an additional spending review as well, or sometimes the spending review happened in the, uh, in the autumn statement. Um, but historically, over most of history, we have had two of these um, things, traditionally the autumn statement and the budget, though they've changed their names at various uh, at various points so the sort of um the um the purist in me would say yes we just need one budget a year makes sense to have it in the autumn um you have more than one you end up with far too much fiddling and faffing around and you know frankly causing problems um the, the realist in me tells me that every time a chance has tried to do that it's broken down after about a year and they've just ended up doing two anyway either for um, good reasons or because they you know because there's so much going on or uh, or, or also because they just want the chill, their, they, you know, their day in the sun more than once a year. <laughs> you said earlier that you're independent, and you are. Um, in this world of politics, people won't always, um, <laughs> not necessarily agree, because you are independent, but it's, impo it's impossible to take politics out of economics. You know, at various times over the years, I remember you, the IFS being, oh, they're a right-leaning think tank, they're Tories, you know, they're attacking Labour because this is a front for the Tory party. <laughs> As an organisation that doesn't come into existence, really, I guess you can't take politics out of economics, but to not explicitly be party political and to be independent and just to give the world the benefit of your expertise. How hard is it to to navigate that and to deal with those charges, however baseless they might be? Um, it, it, it varies. I mean, I think um, easily the hardest times have been in the two referendums, the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit referendum and that's been because um you know they've been big political things with the just some sort of yes no one-off um uh response 
and we are just an economics um, think tank research organization. So we're only talking about the economics. And in each case, the economics is just blindingly obvious. Um, you know, the rest of the UK gives Scotland a whole pile of money. Clearly, if they get independence, they'll have less. Uh, that's it. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, as far as the economics is concerned, I actually think, you know, yeah, I don't think, you know, of course, it's perfectly reasonable for Scotland to want to be independent. They shouldn't be voting on the basis of, you know, losing a bit of money. If that, I mean, that like, national, national sort of identity is a far bigger thing than that. But we are just doing the economics. And the economics is obvious. And actually, the same is pretty much true of Brexit. Um, you know, there are very, you know, big sovereignty and political reasons for wanting to leave the European Union. But of course, it will make us worse off because we'll be making trade with our biggest, nearest and richest trading partner harder. Now, um, it's, it's in times like that, when you're just doing the economics and you're saying what in both those cases is bleeding obvious, um, and it's a referendum where the other side just, you know, neither side wants to admit that there's any trade-offs it's just going to be yes or no so that that I think has been hard and we've been accused of being of taking a political position when we're really just essentially being the mouthpiece to some extent of the economics profession saying er guys this really is obvious um in, in a way the sort of um most elections are a lot more a lot easier because you've got two uh, you've got you know, two big manifestos you've got lots of policies neither side is ever entirely honest or you know clear or what have you and so there's usually quite a lot to um it's usually relatively easy to be balanced um the last uh, that was slightly different in 2017 and 2019 elections essentially because labor had enormous manifestos with lots of stuff to analyze and the conservatives essentially didn't say anything so that's a sort of you know so, so, so again it, it's sort of you know because we had a lot of labor stuff to analyze uh, and just nothing, you know, when we made it very clear, well, we, there's nothing in this conservative stuff. Um, you'd spend more time talking about one than the other. Um, uh, so, it, 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 you know, the, 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 the balance is sometimes difficult. It sometimes can appear difficult to appear balanced, but, um, uh, but you kind of have to respond to the world that you're responding to. I guess one of the benefits as well is that because you're seen as the leading voice and with good reason and independent and rigorous as experts, politicians want your approval. They want to be able to get up in the House of Commons or at the hustings and say, our plans have been approved by the IFS. The IFS has said that our plans will, you know, are more desirable than that lot. I mean, do you get leading politicians saying to you, not can you give the manifesto the once over, but... Can you give me some help getting these figures right or give me some guidance on, on what a more desirable tax policy would look like? Yeah, I mean, we talk, to, we talk to politicians in that kind of vein and we sort of tell them sometimes what we will say. If, if they say, you know, if they say something, we'll tell them whether we'll say it adds up or not. I mean, that's just kind of part of a helpful bit of um, uh, discussion between, uh, you know, independent organisations and... Um, and political parties and to be honest we do that more with the opposition than the government so we've been doing that more with Labour over the last decade and we did it more with the Conservatives over the decade before that because of course the government has you know thousands of civil servants to lean on and, and, and oppositions um, and oppositions don't but I think the but, but I think what one of the sort of one of the positive things about British politics actually is I've I think 
I can barely remember more than one or two occasions in the last decade when I, anyone from either of the parties has kind of you know, rung up and tried to sort of sway us or, uh, or tell us off or, um, uh, you know, be sort of angry with what we, what we explicitly be angry with what we said or try to lean on us to say anything. I mean, they're, they're in that sense, I mean, they're much better behaved, I suspect, than some people would, would, would imagine. Well, that's reassuring to know. I mean, I, I'd hate to think they're sort of rigging you up and berating you. No, they, they don't. I mean, um, uh, they, they don't. <laughs> so let's just just come back to some detail on the budget then. This, he used a phrase uh, in the budget, uh, Rishi Sunak, a super deduction for investment. And you talked about it near the start of this interview. Now, is the phrase super deduction a phrase that he has just made up or is that an existing term? I think he's made it up. Um, it, it's, uh, it maybe maybe it's been uh, maybe it's existed in previous um, in previous times, but uh, no, I think uh, I, I think I think he's made it up, and um, it, it reflects the fact that it's more than a deduction. It's actually a you know it's actually a subsidy. So it's a, it's a you know it's a deduction plus. Um, it's probably something I'll. Um, I don't know if you know, but it's uh, you, you probably you know the, the Job Center Plus, which is the you know the arm of DWP, which. Um, uh, helps people find jobs and has all benefits and so on. I mean, that Job Centre Plus, it used to be called Job Centre, and Job Centre Plus was just the working sort of title used within government until they came up with a better name. And then they just kind of, that's just what they ended up with. I mean, maybe the same was true of super deduction. They were intended to come up with something better, but then it just stuck. Because sometimes these phrases do exist. I, I worked for Consumer Focus for a while, and one of the statutory powers we had was a super complaint. I think for energy oh, yes, consumers. Yes, yes, yes. And I thought I was I thought if we made this up to make it sound good, but actually it was there in law. The super complaint is an actual thing. So then yesterday I thought, I wonder if a super deduction is a similar thing, or whether it turns out he's just made it up. And and the effect of that super deduction, what is effectively a subsidy, is for investment in plant and machinery. So how does that actually work? Companies will what? Buy something for a car manufacturing plant and then what they can claim the cost of it back afterwards i mean the the the, the general i mean the, the, the so it's so it's a deduction offered at 130 percent of corporation tax so imagine it was offered at 100 percent. that would just mean that if i invested five million quid i'd take five million quid off my corporation tax bill um and actually something like that is is is, is pretty sensible because you you know you you, you want to give you, you don't want to be uh, disincentivizing companies from investing uh, and we give some allowance for that at the moment but it's limited um, uh, and that limit has bounced up and down over over time um, the point about this deduction is first that it's not limited you can I mean, you at the moment the limit I think is a million pounds but this 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 could be 10 million or 100 million or whatever um, and not only do you knock the whole of that off your corporate tax bill the government actually gives you some money as well um, so that's, uh, I think the sense in which it is super is that the government is giving you money as well as allowing you to offset it against your um, tax bill at 100, uh, 100%. So it is, you know, it's a pretty generous, um, it's a pretty generous system, but only for two years, supposedly. In your brilliant briefing earlier this week, which I'm sure many listeners to the show will, will have seen and watched since, um, you said that it, there are ways in which it, it could distort behaviour. Well, what sort in what sort of way? Well, I think um, in some ways, in the way the chancellor intends, which is to is is for 
companies that might have decided to invest some money in four years time actually to decide to do it next year in other words so as, as a way of giving the economy a bit of a kick start uh, but of course then that can give you a bit of a hangover further down the road because we might get lots of investment for the next two years and then very little for the two years after that so the, but that, that that's the intention to some extent at least i mean the real intention is to get more investment in total but i think a part of it is also to change the timing but i think there are two two other ways which are perhaps more worrying what one is that um you know, because there's a subsidy you might just get investment which is not you know not actually economically viable i mean whether you want companies to be investing in things that um you know, don't don't actually provide a proper return um yeah i think is seriously questionable because that that in the end is just a waste of money um and and, and you know, time and everything else um i think the, the other thing is that as you said this is a this is for plant and machinery um and not for other things and um, we know that investment in what people call intangibles so um, you know brands and IT uh, some sort of um, you know, software and um, uh, the other things that you know, make the modern economy really tick um, don't count um, so you could spend a lot of money on um, developing your business which is effectively investment but you this wouldn't uh, count against uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't count against that as i think that's uh, that that's also a potential distortion here it feels a little bit old economy um in that it's just for plant and machine ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Every budget, I guess every, <laughs> there's the pressure on every chancer is, how do you help stimulate growth, nurture an economy, uh, but also get the balance right between clawing enough of that money back for yourself to then invest in public services and do all the other political things that you want to do? Just thinking in general, but including this budget, do you think this government has broadly got the balance right between trying to incentivise uh, uh, growth and allow it to happen, but also chew a bit back to level up redistribute and, and everything else uh well i mean it depends what you mean by this government if you go back to 2010 um which is you know, essentially the conservatives have been broadly in charge over that period i mean and you look at the results i think you'd have to say probably not i mean we've um we've had a combination of you know really poor economic growth um and uh you know really tough austerity on public services in particular 
uh, and also on on, on welfare uh, on welfare benefits. So um, you know the the outcome has been has not you know, frankly has not been good. I mean we've had um, you know again you know, we've set all sorts of bad records. We've had you know the worst um, earnings uh, growth or lack of it. Um, pretty much in history. We've had the biggest spending cuts pretty much in history. We've had the worst productivity growth pretty much in history. Now, the the question then is to what extent is that the fault of the government and to what extent is this just sort of the, the sort of uh, the, the, the invisible hand of the economy working in ways which are really hard to control? Um, and there is certainly part of that. I mean, the thing about governments is, of course, they want to claim credit for things that go right and um, uh, you blame other people things that go wrong in, in in truth can a government do very much about the economy over the next two or three years in a way that is sustainable often not can it make a big difference to what happens in 10 years time often yes um, but of course the the two um, you know the political cycle doesn't quite fit uh, that and then you have to look at things like industrial policies and ed particularly education policies and you know, further education, vocational education, and um, those sorts of things. And you just never get the long-term focus that you absolutely need to make a real difference. And the same is true with all sorts, you know, issues in the way the tax system works, the way the competition policy works, energy policy works. All of these things make a big difference but they make a big difference over a protracted period. Those austerity years then, the coalition years, and maybe the two or three years that followed, would we be in a better situation? Would it have been wiser not to have gone through austerity and have borrowed and invested to grow the economy out of that downturn? Uh, well, whether you could, how much you could have grown the economy out of it, I think is, is still questionable. But I think there is, you know, I, you didn't need to um, uh, impose austerity at the speed that it was imposed. Um, and you certainly didn't need, having done that over the first five years, uh, to double down um, over the next two or three years, as as happened. And uh, you know, I think the particu particularly sort of socially damaging uh, changes came after 2015, um, uh, where you had these big cuts in, in in welfare benefits, and you continued squeeze on areas like the justice and prison systems, where um, it should have been obvious at that point uh, that that you, they'd taken as much as they could. And there are other bits of government spending where you know the evidence is pretty clear that there was lots of scope for uh, cutting, particularly after 2010. I mean, I've literally spoken to local authority chief executives who told me that they were, quotes, pissing money against the wall, unquotes, uh, prior to 2010. And there, there, there was scope for, um, uh, there, there was scope for, uh, for change there. But I think something, uh, something in the same direction, uh, but a little gentler, particularly after 2015, probably would have been helpful. And how do you feel about the general level of debate we have about economics in this country and, and public finances? Um, that old, I guess Mrs. Thatcher is the most famous proponent of it, but likening uh, an economy to household spending is something that I know drives so many people mad because they say it's just not the same at all. Households can't borrow in the same way. They don't have the same levers that a state has. Do you think, I mean, I just find it baffling that for all, uh, for as advanced we, as we think we are in this country, the amount of graduates we have and everything, 
public understanding of economics, and I think in a way the debate around austerity in those coalition years proved it, a lot of people actually don't have a, a basic handle on rules like, well, actually, during a, a, a recession, it's not always the smartest thing to cut. Borrowing can be a good thing. I, I felt that the public felt that, and I think the polling proved it, as well as the electoral success of, of David Cameron, was that people thought, oh, actually, this is the right time to cut, when actually the, it was the right time not to. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it, 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 I mean, there's kind of, uh, yeah. I think I think there are a lot. There, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues there, um, and it was remarkable. I mean, the, you know, the 2015 Conservative manifesto uh, was deliberately telling the British people, you know, we're going to kick you and kick you harder, and um, people voted for it. And it, it, it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a very, you know, remarkable electoral strategy, which which um, uh, which, which which worked. Um, I think there is a, I, th I think there is a general issue about um, uh, economic um, uh, education and maybe broader political uh, education in a sense. And I, but I think it's, it's quite, it's quite complicated. You're absolutely right. The economy is not like a household. It's exactly the case that you can and should, you know, as we have over the last year, be borrowing very large amounts um, to support economies um, when they need it. Um, but then a lot of the, you know, and that, and that, that bit's sort of easy, um, but a lot of the rest of it is, and as I say, I think some, some other bits are easy. And I think, um, you know, the, econo the economics, and let me just stress, just the economics of Brexit and Scottish independence and so on are easy. Um, uh, but a lot of it's not. I mean, what is the, you know, the right level of investment or borrowing or you know, the right way of designing the education system. I mean, that's where, where, the, where economics ends and public policy begins, I'm not quite sure. But there are lots of more complicated questions. Um, but I think the, you know, it's not obvious from following the media where, it, where are the set of things where we kind of know the answer and where are the set of things where there is a reason, reasonable people can reasonably disagree? Because you don't, that's not how it's presented either by the politicians or actually, frankly, by the press. I mean, you'd think from the way that you know, Brexit was covered as an example on, um, you know, in the, on, on you know, uh, the, across the press, that that was as controversial economically as, say, austerity was or as, um, you know, uh, Gordon Brown's economic policies were or, or what have you. And it just, you know, it just, just isn't. And I think it's therefore it's very hard for people to um, sort of judge where, you know, almost where the knowledge lies. Um, but it's, it's also something I've reflected on sort of um, for myself it, 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 in a way, you know, you did A-level economics. Most people, including me, didn't. Um, uh, and my, my, you know, my kids, you know, they um, the youngest ones are in upper six at the moment. They've gone through school and they've learned, you know, about history and differential calculus and, you know, structure of the atom and so on. And they haven't learned anything at all about how politics works or how the economy works or what have you. And that's just as easy to make a sort of challenging academic subject as it is to make English literature or geography um, challenging academic subjects. And, and yet you, you come out of education not necessarily knowing anything about stuff that actually really matters. And, you know, of course, it sort of matters that someone knows how atoms work. But I think it's kind of more important that everyone knows broadly how the economy works. 
Well, I just found it, 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 it's to this day, the most, the best two years of education I had was my economics A level. I loved it because it explains so much about human behavior. It's the measure of human behavior told through numbers and just basic things like demand and supply and why prices rise and how. And yeah, yeah. I just thought it was incredible. It was almost like being told how life really works. It was like being shown the matrix. I was like, this is inc- <laughs> this, this should be locked away in a box somewhere. It felt. I mean, it's a form of sociology in a way. You're like, this is how humans actually behave. Despite what people yeah. say, this is where they will shop and this is why they will buy things. And yeah. you can't you can't necessarily predict, but you can certainly, you know, it's the history basically of our economic behavior. I'd loved it. And I just think I, there's so little of it in the public realm. That's brilliant. Well, I mean, if anyone listening should clearly go out and on, on, on that, you have know, much better job of selling economics than I've ever managed and go out and study economics for exactly that reason. That's exactly what it is. And um, uh, I mean, I think part of the problem is that you no, know, uh, quite often professional economists don't do themselves any favours because they don't talk about it in the way that you've just talked about it. You either get, you know, I mean, there's a lot of um, sort of very, very technical sort of work that goes on in universities, which is is quite divorced from the sorts of things you're talking about. There's lots of, you know, fairly dubious predictions about which way the economy is going to go over the next uh, year or two, which a lot of people do, which again is pretty divorced from the sort of things you've just talked about. But actually there, you know, there are lots of, there are also lots of economics in places like the IFS and actually, you know, quite a lot of it happening in government and, um, uh, elsewhere, which is exactly, um, uh, and some in universities as well, exactly doing the sorts of things that you're describing, actually aimed at you know, trying to find a way of solving some of the biggest problems that we um, that we face. Now, you know, economists are no more, um, uh, I mean, just as capable of getting things wrong as everyone else. But um, but actually, there is there's both a you know, set of knowledge and ideas and sort of toolkits for evaluating what works and what doesn't work that, uh, that, that, that economists kind of do make use of. And um, it can be incredibly uh, you know, important and interesting. A couple of things that occasionally crop up. I'd love to know what you think about them. Firstly, the idea of a flat tax. Now, to me, that just sounds like a tax cut for, for higher earners. Am I wrong? No, you're not. I mean, that's... Uh... <laughs> You know that's broadly what it that's broadly what it would be. Um, you know, there's uh, you know, I mean, there are different things. I mean, flat taxes come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, and it wouldn't be entirely regressive because you can have a flat tax with a big sort of tax-free allowance at the bottom, which means that higher earners still pay a, you know, more proportionately than lower earners. But you know, at the moment where we've got a forty percent rate and then a forty-five percent rate, that makes the whole thing more progressive than you could make it if you had a flat tax. So, I mean, in in honesty, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't think I know anyone um, seriously thinks that this is a, this is a great idea for, you know, for exactly that reason. There's not, there's not much in the way of benefit from it. And when people talk about simplicity, well, and, you know, we do have an incredibly complicated tax system, but, but it's not the fact that we've got, you know, three rates of income tax that makes it complicated. It's the sort of, it's, it's the million pages of other stuff that make it complicated. Do you think any government will ever hugely simplify the tax system? Or, or once it becomes this complicated, are you basically stuck with it? I think you're stuck with a lot of it. Um, I mean, there are, I mean, there are things you could do to make things a lot more straightforward. I mean, think of the VAT system where we have... You know, about half of the things we buy, you've got VAT on, and about half you haven't. 
And actually, I think there is a case for having VAT at the same rate on everything. Um, that would make things a lot simpler. Um, uh, because at the moment you've got this, these absurdities about um, you know gingerbread men having VAT on them, depending on how much how many chocolate eyes they've got, or you know, I mean, literally. Um, and, and that's just one example of a, you know a thousand different areas where you've got complexity as a result of that. And you can, you, I mean, you can do that, put VAT on everything in a way uh, which is perfectly fair to people because you raise a lot of money, which you can then redistribute through other bits of the tax system or the benefit system or what have you. And then there's all sorts of other bits of complexity associated with the fact that we tax um, income from uh, various sorts of capital and savings less than we tax income from earnings, uh, that uh, we tax self-employed people less than we tax employees. And as soon as you have all of these things where you tax similar things differently, then obviously people think, oh, well, I want to you know, be in that bit where they tax me less. Uh, and so people do it. And so you kind of build a whole huge mountain of legislation to define exactly you know, what counts as an employee and self-employed and what counts as capital income and what counts as um, earned income and, 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 and so on and so on. Um, so whilst you have all of those sort of um, bits of the system where you treat people and things that are quite similar differently, then you're just going to have a mountain of legislation to stop people uh, evading and avoiding um, that. Uh, but, 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 but moving to that, sim the, that simpler system, you know, always creates winners and losers and special interest lobbies and all those sorts of things. The most important thing there is is this. I, I didn't know about the gingerbread men with the chocolate buttons. So <laughs> oh, what? what one-eyed gingerbread men, sort of uh, tax-efficient yeah, gingerbread it's, cyclops, is the way exactly forward. Exactly true. Whether whether, how, whether the VAT is applied or not depends on exactly how much chocolate there is on the gingerbread man. But there's also um, uh, some some clothes. There, there, there's there's this brilliant. <laughs> my favourite thing in tax, actually, there is something which if you Google fur skin flu chart. Okay. Um, it's an HMRC um, uh, tool to help you determine whether there's VAT on clothes, um, depending on how much um, fur or wool uh, or how much fur there is on those clothes. And it goes through all this stuff about whether the fur comes from different sorts of animals. And literally at the bottom uh, of this flow chart, which is determined that, it asks you whether the goat comes from Mongolia or not. <laughs> from which the fur uh, originated. I mean, it's just staggering. And it doesn't determine, it doesn't tell you whether that means it was born in Mongolia or whether it you know, grew up in Mongolia or what have you. But it's, uh, you know. And with the chocolate on the gingerbread <laughs> person, is that like per blob? If, if he's got three buttons, then that's that. Or is it total mass of chocolate? So would one big button not be enough of a loophole? I can't quite remember. I think it's okay if it's got chocolate eyes, but if it has a chocolate belt, that's too much. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, how? I mean, this is the thing with any, wherever you draw a line, people are going to go to the line, aren't they? This is the nature of it. I had no, how have we missed all that? We, you know, the pasty tax got so much attention and that has, I'm glad that this is the podcast that's finally exposed the gingerbread man. <laughs> oh man. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the Laffer curve, which is a theoretical bell curve, which I kind of understand that if you tax... Nothing, you get nothing back. And if you tax everything at 100%, you disincentivize economic activity and you get close to nothing. And then there's a theoretical bell chart somewhere in the middle. Is the Laffer curve just a load of nonsense or is there something in it? 
uh, I mean, there's something in it, but 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 it's not very applicable to very much at all that we do at the moment. I mean, the um, you know, back in the 1970s, we really did have a top rate of tax on earned income of 83% on our unearned income of 98%. And we were probably on the wrong end of a Laffer curve then. I mean, you know, and, and uh, you know, as those, um, uh, as those rates uh, came down, the amount of tax revenue went up. So when you've got numbers that high, yes, um, it, it's clearly uh, relevant. Uh, is it relevant to much of what we're doing at the moment? No, not really. I mean, uh, so for example, you know, a lot of, um, a, a lot of people said, that um, reducing corporation tax rates um, would bring in more money. Well, no. Um, and you know, whatever the pros and cons of increasing the corporation tax rate to uh, 25%, and it might not bring in as much money as being suggested, but it'll bring in some. Uh, but that point about not as much as suggested is important. I mean, pe people do respond to these things. So, um, uh, you know, and, and people, you know, we were talking about the sort of, does the top rate of 45 the, the, the higher rate highest rate of 45 percent of income tax if you raise that to 50 percent would you get the full amount that you would expect if no one changed their behavior no no you won't i mean people will change their behavior and pay less tax as a result um uh overall you'll probably get a bit more but but i mean really probably nowhere near as much as you would um if people didn't change their behavior i think the one i, I think the one thing I think we can say at the moment where we really are deliberately on the wrong side of the Laffer curve is probably tax on cigarettes, where, you know, um, you know, if we, we the tax per packet of cigarettes is very high because we want to stop people smoking. And we've been you know, relatively, you know, that's been relatively um, as part of a bigger strategy, relatively successful. Um, and in a sense, environmental taxes are supposed to are supposed to be like that. I mean, you you raise, you raise them to a point where you're actually stopping people doing the things that you want to stop them doing. Uh, but when people talk about Laffer curves, uh, you know, applying to the corporation tax rate or the standard income tax rate or, or what have you, they're, they're they're far off the mark. And are there other things that we should be taxing? You know. Friends of mine on the left say, oh, well, income tax is, is rubbish, really. It's inherently regressive. We should be taxed. There should be a wealth tax instead. Does the IFS have a view on stuff like that? It always depends what you mean by a wealth tax. Um, uh, people, people, I think, often have very different things in their minds when they talk about a wealth tax. So um, we, we do have a bunch of taxes which are sort of wealth taxes. Though. We have an inheritance tax. Um, uh, which doesn't raise a huge amount uh, of money, but it's clearly a you know a tax on wealth that is um, uh, left in uh, estates. And I think there you know there is it's not really an economic case, but I think there's a you know there's clearly a sort of philosophical case or ethical case for making that uh, more substantive. Um, we have a capital gains tax. So if, you're, if the value of stuff that you own goes goes up and then you sell it, you pay that again I mean, there are lots of things you could do to make that better it's um it's absurdly generous still uh in some circumstances um uh, particularly uh, where people have um invested in companies that have become more valuable what used to be known as entrepreneurs relief um which meant you only paid 10 percent tax but in what i think is the best thing the treasury's ever done they renamed entrepreneurs relief Business asset disposal relief, as in bad relief, um, <laughs> sounded really good. Now sounds really bad. <laughs> um, uh, and council tax, in a way, is a is, is a wealth tax. It's a tax that depends on the value of 
your home and you can make that an awful lot. And there's so many things you could do to make that better. So we do have some taxes on wealth. Now, what might you mean by a wealth tax? Well, I think usually, or quite often people have in their minds a tax on people who are wealthier than them, however wealthy that happens to be. Um, and very often on people with maybe 10 million or 20 million or, or, or what have you. Um, uh, sometimes they mean it as a one-off and sometimes they mean it as an annual thing. Uh, but if, if you take it seriously as a sort of comprehensive tax on people's wealth, where, you know, where wealth is defined by what most people have as in their, their house and their pension, um, I think you immediately um, get people being rather less keen on it because 80% of our wealth is in our houses and our pensions. Um, uh, if you exclude houses and pensions, you don't get very much money. Um, and if you only target the the, the, the super rich, you, you you both don't get very much money and end up enriching a lot of lawyers. Um, the, so um, I, I, in many ways, I think you just need to define what you mean by this and how you would make it um, and how you would make it work. It's often not really, you know, if you're looking at the sort of super rich, it's not really an economic question. It's a question for lawyers. Can you make it work? Um, if you're looking at the population as a whole, I think it's a political question. Are you really going to tax people's pensions and housing? And if you're not going to do that, then you're just not going to get much money. And it's going to be very unfair on those people who happen to have their wealth, not in pensions and housing. There's always this sense that somehow there's this pot of money somewhere. And if only we could get our paws on it, all our problems <laughs> would be solved. And why are these malicious people hiding this stash of gold? And, the, you know, that idea that this one thing will unlock riches and opportunity and fairness. And actually, as well, not that I didn't think this before our conversation, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. Sadly, it is. <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty confident that, you know, that, that, that the government isn't sitting there hiding this pot of gold from the rest of us uh, that they could get their they could get their paws on. Because if they are, I've never I've, I've never discovered what it is. I mean, there are I mean, yes, there are loads of ways which you could raise more money through taxes. Um, but I'm afraid none of them are, um, you know, ones that everyone's going to agree on or find easy um, uh, or, uh, you know, or is going to get you elected next time round. <laughs> That's the other thing, of course. Just finally, on, on income tax, uh, Rishi Sunak froze the income tax personal allowance. Um, there was something you said in your, in your briefing this week that I thought was fascinating. I never thought of this. I didn't know it. Um, was that by 2025, we could have 5 million higher rate taxpayers compared with 4 million now. So even in four years, a million more people are going to move in to the higher tax bracket. That feels instinctively that is a good thing as in it shows that the economy is doing quite well and that people are doing quite well out of it well i mean that well they won't necessarily be because of course the fact the point about freezing it is that if even if people's incomes only go up with inflation they're no better off um but the, but in just cash terms they've got more money uh and obviously if they're then taxed more they're going to be less uh well off and the point is in a, in a way the 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 £50,000 limit is just beginning to get to that point of the income distribution where there are a reason, quite a few people there. I mean, it's still well above average earnings, uh, but there are quite a number of people, you know, in that sort of, you know, high 40s um, kind of levels of income. And you freeze it for five years. And if inflation's uh, 
say 2% a year for five years, that's that's a 10% reduction. So that's kind of £5,000. So that's quite, that begins to get quite substantial. Um, and so freezing things makes a difference over time. I mean, the the number of people paying the top rate over 150,000 has doubled in a decade because that 150,000 pound limit hasn't changed in a decade. So you've had a doubling of that number. It's, it's many fewer. I mean, that's going going from about a quarter of a million to about half a million because that's a, you know, there aren't very many people up there. Um, uh, and then you look over much longer periods. Um, you know, what, back in uh, you know, 30 years ago, you had about, I think it was about one in 15 um income taxpayers paid higher rate tax and we're now heading for one in six so you know again these things if you don't change the um uh if you don't take change the thresholds in line with people's incomes then you do you you do you gradually change things quite a lot and what's the effect of that is that it's i guess in simple terms people just pay more income tax but do you think it is a disincentive for people I don't think there's much evidence that um, the 40p tax rate on incomes around there has a big effect in terms of um, in terms of incentives. I mean, there are some, you know, there there are there are some things where it can make a bit of a difference. I mean, if you're, um, uh, you know, you know how much income you might draw out of your pension, for example, where you can change that might be affected when you draw dividends and so on might have have an effect. And we know that you know when the top 50 P rate was introduced, people who could draw dividends changed the timing of doing that quite a lot. But for most of us who are just kind of, you know, um, wage slaves, um, it, it's, uh, I, I don't think it makes much, honestly, don't think it make, there, there's very little evidence that it makes that much difference. And the budget didn't, just in closing, didn't mention social care at all. It's something we haven't spoken about because it wasn't in there, which was a bit of a surprise. Well, it didn't mention public service spending at all, really. It wasn't just social care. And, um, you know, we've got a spending review um, later in the year where I presume either in that or separately we'll get more on social care. But, um, you know, we didn't we also didn't hear about, you know, catch up um, you know, how, how, how we're going to be funding education over the next several years or you know, any extra money for the NHS after um, this year uh, and so on. So I think the I think. Uh, you know, there, there is there is a lot still to do for the Chancellor and the government in um, you know, public service reform generally, but also actually in funding um, public services over the next few years. And one of the, you know, the, the, the numbers written into the budget at the moment suggest very little money available. But I think those numbers will almost certainly be changed um, when we come to actually having a spending review. And, and the other thing, actually, was, was that... Um... Although furlough tapers off, universal credit doesn't. That just stops the the, the twenty pound uplift. Yeah, so the, the twenty. Yeah, I mean the twenty pound uplift um, introduced a year ago, supposedly just for a year, was supposed to come up to an end at the end of this month. Uh, now the chances said, well, it's going to come to the end at the end of September. Um, and the, you know, twenty pounds a week is quite a lot for um, you know if you're if you're sort of a single person on universal credit is about a fifth of your income, 20 pounds a week. I mean, it's, um, and it's worth remembering that about, about a fifth of the working age population receive universal credit. I mean, I think people, people often forget that this is, this is not just a few unemployed people. This is a fifth of the working age population because it also goes to a lot of people on low earnings in work. Um, but yes, the, the idea now is that it comes to an end at the end of September. So people's incomes will go down immediately by 
um, over 80 pounds a month. Whereas almost all of the other bits of support, whether it be the furlough scheme or uh, business rates um, relief or even the VAT cut for hospitality, I mean, all of those are being more gradually phased out. And I'd have thought even politically, it would have been easier to phase this out gradually and say to people, well, you know, you'll have £10 less the next month and then another £10 less the month after that. So you don't have that political cliff edge, but you also don't have this cliff edge on people's budgets. But, um, you know, we'll wait and see uh, how much pressure the Chancellor is under to extend again in any case. I keep saying one last thing. I promise this is the last thing because Universal Credit has made me think about it. Now, again, I don't want to bring my prejudices into it. I think I've not yet to be convinced, but I would like to get your opinion on the idea of a universal basic income, whether that is a desirable thing. Well, again, to some extent, it depends what you mean by it. But um, but I think what people mean by universal basic income is providing enough money to everyone uh, such that they can just about live on it. Um, uh, you know, as a way of, I think, doing two things. First, to um, give people a sort of basis for building other income on, and secondly, to avoid a lot of the problems with the means testing. Um, in practice, it's never been done, and it's never been done because it's, in practice, not practicable, um, in my view. Um, so you, if you were to provide it at a level which got rid of all means testing, given that, you know, when, when we look at people with children and high housing costs and so on, you'd have to provide it at a very high level, which would clearly be completely, I mean, completely unaffordable. Um, uh, but if you were to, you know, if you were to provide it at a thousand pounds a year, there'd be very little um, point in it. It's just incredibly expensive. I mean, look, there are, um, it was, what is it, there are 70 million people um, in the country. Um, well, just, um, you know, a thousand pounds by 70 million people immediately gets you to 70 billion pounds. Uh, and that's a lot of money. Uh, if you're looking at 10,000 pounds, you're looking at 700 billion pounds. Now, um, you know, that's a really lot of money and you have to, have to, have to, um, have to raise that from somewhere. I think you inevitably end up um, with welfare systems that one way or another target on people. And you can do that in different ways. You can do it as we increasingly have done by, means testing you can do it as some other countries do on the basis of um you know your contributions and then whether you're unemployed or um disabled or um uh, or, or what have you uh, but the uh, but but it's it's like um it's like everything else you know people search for simple answers um and and, and they're genuinely not there and we're always making these often really hard trade-offs. Um, uh, so, you know, if you were to have a universal basic income, we would have much, much, much higher levels of tax. Um, and, you know, at the point where I think it would start to be damaging to the, uh, you know, significantly damaging to the economy. And, and, and also, I don't think it will be politically um, saleable either. Paul, this has been so good. Um, it would be great to get you back on in the future when, you know, when things like this get suggested, it'd be really good to have a chat with you and just have a, you know, the view of the expert on these matters. This has just been, it's just been great. Thank you so much. Oh, for that's coming very on. good to hear. You must, must, yeah, you must have a very sad life. It's the best conversations. But anyway, I've certainly, I've certainly enjoyed it enormously. So I'd be very, very happy to come back. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. Cheers. 
Oh, I would love to get Paul back in the future. Just on whenever there's a kind of economic discussion or row or something like the flat tax gets suggested, although we've covered that, so I don't think we need to go into any more detail on that, or UBI. Um, but whenever those, whenever there's a kind of flashy new term or an old idea gets repackaged, it would be great to just get Paul on and go through it and what the effect of it would be and what the reality of it is. Uh, it's just such a great person's brains to pick. The same with Deborah Mattinson. You know, when you have a guest like that who really knows their stuff, who can just draw on all that knowledge, all their expertise, and they're prepared to just come here and brief me, and as a result, everyone who listens to this podcast, what a treat to just be able to get that in in a in an hour or so conversation. We're all now more intelligent at the end of that conversation, thanks to Paul, than we were at the start of it. And... Uh, just what a great thing in itself, quite apart from just what a brilliant conversation it was. So, um, I think this is the third episode I've put out this week, so I'm not going to be doing three episodes every week. It's just the way the week has gone. Um, I wasn't able to record an episode last week, so that was the first one. I had Margaret Beckett booked, who was amazing. And of course, it was budget week, so we had to do a budget special. So I'll see you next week. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And that can be anything, a suggestion for a guest, perhaps a feedback on an episode or, or something that um, has triggered a memory or something or a point you want to make. Uh, literally anything. Uh, always nice to know where people listen. And of course, leave a review on iTunes. I've put uh, links in the blurb to the work of the IFS uh, so that you can follow them and follow their fantastic work and follow Paul. And uh, hopefully we'll get him on in the future. And I'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. ta When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.